Thank you all for being here this morning. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 5, book of 1 John, and we are near the finish line, and then we'll be going into 2 John together, so we intended to do the first, first epistle, and then we'll do the second and third, which are much shorter than the first. It has been a blessing to walk through this text with you. And I'm going to start back in verse 9 of chapter 5, and I know you all covered this already with Ray last week, but just to try to frame today's verses in context, what we will be studying today will be verses 13 through 17, Um, but I'm going to read all the way to the end of this chapter. So I think we have one more Sunday left in 1 John, and then we'll be moving to 2 John. So beginning 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, and reading through to the end of the chapter. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ." He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Now let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, just for your word to us. We thank you for the instruction that it is to our lives. I pray, Lord, that we not just take this in as something that we'll just set aside when we leave here today, but it is something that really infuses itself into our lives and that we begin to manifest um, the instruction of your word into our lives that people would see and that they would know that we truly are your children. As we walk in this world, God, help us to not be stained by it. Um, Help us to quickly confess things that we need to give up to you, Lord, and and pray that we are not walking in a pattern of sin, but rather we are patterning ourselves in righteousness because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Spirit molding and shaping us into his image and sanctifying us for your use. God, I pray that um, your Word would just 
be uh, and do what it's intended to do in our lives, that it would penetrate, that it would sharpen us, Lord, that it would rebuke us where necessary, and that it would edify us as well, God. And we pray that you are glorified through the study of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today we um, enter into what I would call John's closing comments to his epistle. And I know that last week you were blessed by Ray's teaching last Sunday, and honestly, he probably had the more difficult text to deal with uh, in the entire epistle, and I promised him that I didn't plan it that way, but the Lord must have intended for him to handle that text, and I know he considers it a blessing to have the opportunity to study God's Word as anyone who would bring a teaching here. I hope we always consider it a blessing for us to be able to prepare the teaching, but we, as always, want to be careful with any text of Scripture and do our best to faithfully divide it rightly. We want to be faithful to God's Word, and it's a serious matter to have the responsibility of teaching to others. So I want to remind you to please be Bereans. Any teaching that is brought from this platform, any teaching that is brought from this church, not just from this pulpit, but if we have extra biblical studies, always be a Berean. And we find in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul is commending those who they found in Berea when they went to the synagogue to reason with them from the scriptures. Uh, He saw something there that was different than some of the others that they had encountered. And now these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I commend you in doing that and encourage you to always check the scriptures to see if the things that I'm teaching or Wes or Ray or whoever may be up here, uh, Barry, whoever is teaching, that you go to the scriptures to examine them and see if the things that you're hearing from a man, from women teachers, that the things that you're hearing are so. So the first thing is that John tells us his purpose for writing this letter. As I mentioned, we're going to start in verse 13, so that's where we are. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is putting the book in on what he writes at the beginning. As I mentioned, this appears as a closing statement, and then the things that follow are just these reminders that are wrapped up in the purpose of why he is writing this. But if you look back to 1 John 1, 4, First John chapter 1, verse 4, there he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then everything that follows what he states in verse 4 is the purpose of his writing, that joy may be complete. And now he sort of wraps this up saying, now I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So stating from the outset the things that will follow in the epistle and how they should bring the believer joy. And we have read some really challenging things. We've read some hard things, things that chastise us, that rebuke us, that call sin out in our lives. But as believers, we should find this as a joy to us. And around midway into this epistle, John makes this insertion. insertion. Look at 1 John 2, verse 26. You may not even have to turn the page. John writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John makes this one more exact in his purpose for writing the things that preceded this verse is there he was calling out the false prophets and the false 
teachings that the early church was being challenged by. So there is more pointing back to something that is specific, but I think here in verse 13 of chapter 5, that rather than being more to a specific thing that immediately preceded it, I think that verse 13 is sweeping backwards and taking in the entire letter. And it's very similar to what John does in his gospel. If you want to turn there with me, look at the gospel of John and turn to chapter 20. And the verses that I want you to go to are verses 30 and 31 of the gospel of John. Chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So his statement there in his gospel is also sweeping back into the entire book and taking into account everything that he has told you about Jesus. This is so that you may know and believe in his name. And so very similar, a parallel here in 1 John is he's taking all the things that he has said and he's folding them into this passage. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The audience of this letter not just being the early believers who are alive at the time of this writing, but those of us who are benefiting from this teaching today, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So uh, very often throughout this, John has inserted these reminders. I'm writing this to you who have believed. I'm writing to the children of God. I'm writing to the people who comprise the church, the body of believers in Christ. And the affirming text that follows is that they or we may know that we have eternal life. So these things, he's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that we may know that we have eternal life. There is an affirming statement in that, that you may know. Much of the letter that we've seen has been a refutation of the false teaching of Gnosticism. And we've touched on this quite a few times throughout our study. This teaching was what was taking hold in the early church of that time. It presented many false ideas, but the main one being that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. And because physical flesh to the Gnostics, that was corrupted by sin. And so Jesus could not um, have been sinless if he came in the flesh. So rather, he was only a spiritual being that had the appearance of a human form. And this is what they taught. It also taught that we are not responsible for anything that we do in our flesh because the spirit and the flesh were separate from one another. So people could just then go out and sin all they wanted to and say that it wasn't affecting their salvation because their spirit was not responsible for what the flesh did. And in a lot of ways, Gnosticism is still around today. It's just wrapped up in various forms of false ideas or or false... um, Uh, teachings that are presented even in churches. John takes great care, though, in building the case for Christ being God's Son and His having come in the flesh to refute the false claims of the Gnostics. Uh, The epistle is very black and white. We've mentioned that quite a few times. There's stark contrast between good and evil and darkness and light. 
in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So John is very clear on these matters. He doesn't whitewash anything. He doesn't leave any gray areas for us to walk in. You're either here or you're either there. You're in one or the other. And I think it was Wes that brought this out in a teaching early on in our, our study of 1 John. where, um, And we heard this, I think, at a Bible study presented. It's like, we can't be fence sitters here. You know, we can be fence sitters with maybe other ideas or philosophies. But when it comes to the scriptures... Uh, it's either one side or the other because the fence belongs to Satan as well. So you're either in darkness or you're in light. A very stark contrast in John. The Christian should be walking in a pattern of obedience towards God, a pattern of righteousness, something else that we've seen highlighted by John in this letter. John describes this as a practicing of righteousness, that there should be a trend in your life that is seen as one who is obedient, who out of love of God and love of others is practicing righteousness, is practicing uh, good treatment of others and kindness, and especially to those in the body of Christ. And this is achieved by abiding in God abiding in his love because the source of any righteousness or any good or kind deed that is produced within us is produced by his Holy Spirit. As Stephen was talking to the children today, that the only way we can hope to um, minister to others and produce these good works that are, they are born out of his Holy Spirit within us. John tells the believers to love one another, that love is the foundation to knowing that you are a child of God. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So as we're thinking about the things that he has written up to this point, and the reason why he is writing this is so that we may know that we have eternal life, we reflect back on some of these things, and I'm just really broad brushing it. I could point out a lot of other specifics, but he wants the true believers to know they are a child of God. But John, John also strongly warns of the one who is not a child of God, and he tells us whose child they actually are. I even had, I think, a chart up here that had listed out, if you are a child of God, these are some of the things that you should be seeing in your, lo- in your life, in the pattern of your life, but if you are a child of Satan, um, these are the things that will be manifest in your life. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, this is chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 John, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We are also told here not to love the world or the things in the world, for the world is passing away. What is important for us to know is that we have an eternity in heaven that awaits us, those who are his children. And rather than fixating on the things of the world and looking to those things to fulfill us and to provide us a sense of wholeness as believers, we do not look to the world to do that for us. We need to fix our minds on the things of God and the things that are of his kingdom, the things that are of his will we're going to talk about here a little bit more, and what awaits those who have been granted eternal life. And false teachings, you know, if you think about it, um, I could be wrong about this, but you know, everything that is intended by God 
as Joseph would tell his brothers that, you know what, man intended for evil, God uh, turned to good, God meant it for good. So false teachings have, in a sense, sharpened the point of the pencil in Scripture, right? If it hadn't have been for some of the, the false teachings, uh, we would not have this rich text of Scripture to counter the false teachings that were attempting to infiltrate the church. And contrary to what Gnosticism taught, Scripture teaches exhaustively that we are accountable for our sins and that we deserve God's wrath and that Jesus, who was the God-man, came to bear the punishment for our sin in His flesh by dying on the cross. And if we were not accountable for that sin, then why did Jesus come in the first place? Many false teachings, not just Gnosticism, would discount the cross, making our Savior's sacrifice unnecessary, the false teachings that we hear out there. Teachings today that say that all roads lead to heaven and that God, you know, He just loves you and that He just wants to bless your life. He has His best life now for you. To do that without teaching about sin and the wrath of God, it's a deceptive scheme of the enemy to void the meaning of the cross. If that's all God wants for us, why did by His grace He send His Son, Jesus Christ, Christ, as the gift to atone for our sins, to pay the punishment that we deserved on the cross? The cross is the means by which our sins were forgiven for all who put their faith in Jesus as the Redeemer and Lord and repent of their sins, and to them it is granted eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So definitely all these things that John is wrapping up here, all these things are important to understand and, and the hard stuff that we've looked at. You know, as he told us, he's writing these things so that our joy may be complete, but we're supposed to find joy in understanding what God's nature is. We've seen a lot about God's holiness and his disposition towards our sin, which is his wrath and the consequences of that sin, which is death and eternal death. We see what it costs our Savior, who Jesus really is, the Son of God, come in the flesh, all folded in with God's great love and mercy towards us sinners through Jesus' sacrifice, so that we may know, so that it may be clear that we are a child of God, to know that we have eternal life in Him. Eternal life resides in God fulfilling His promise of a Redeemer who would be His one and only Son who has come to save sinners like you and me. Verse 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Knowing that you have eternal life in Christ because you are God's child now, that should be impactful to your prayer life. For one, God hears the prayers of those who are his, his children. And of the many texts I think that have been misused or misunderstood, this is probably one of them that the prosperity and the health and wealth preachers latch onto and they make their followers think that God is just some genie in the bottle that you know pops out at our every whim when we pray and he's obligated to give us whatever we ask. Now first off, that would be a clear mis- misunderstanding of the text. It would be uh, taking it wildly out of context. <laughs> and the caveat here is if we pray anything according to His will, emphasis on according to His will, He hears us. And those things that are His will, 
he is going to hear and respond to. It is then we can know that we have what we have asked of him. Praying the Father's will, he will (laughs) respond to his will. We find other passages of Scripture that those uh, who claim that God just will grant us whatever we we wish in prayer, um, they might quote Scriptures like Psalm 37, particularly uh, one verse, verse 4, but I'm going to back up to verse 3 and read through verse 6. So here's another one that they may lay claim to in being their proof text of getting whatever you want through prayer. But if we look at it more in context, we don't see that. Verse 3 of Psalm 37, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So where they might say in our reading of 1 John 14 and 15, say, okay, you got me there. Yeah, anything in according to his will. Um, but here, what, here's what Psalm 37 says. And they may chop verse 4 in half and say, he will give you the desires of your heart. And just pluck that out of context and say, here it is. Here's my proof text. But you read what precedes it. You read what follows. The part that gets the attention is that he's given us the desires of our heart. But we must first be delighting in him. Right? What is it to delight in God? It is to delight in His being, to delight in His attributes, to worship Him. It's also found in committing our ways to Him. That's what follows verse 4. In verse 5 it says, commit your ways to Him and also trust Him and then He will act. So really praying for the new this or the new that is actually delighting in the things that you are asking for and not delighting in God. And if you are delighting in God, if you are trusting in Him, if you are committing your ways to Him, then you are going to fall into God's will and pray for His will, just as what we are reading about in 14 and 15 of 1 John chapter 5. That is according to His will. So delighting and committing and trusting is part of praying His will. We also find um, another passage that sometimes gets abused by those who are of the name it, claim it, Um, category in John chapter 16, verses 22 through 24. This is the Gospel of John chapter 16, beginning in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the claim might be here of those who would tell you that you can get whatever you want from God just by asking him prayer. Um, The insertion of according to his will is not found here. It's found in 1 John, but what about here where according to his will is not found Um, it's just where Jesus also promises that if we ask anything in his name, that it will be given to us. But the important thing to consider here is in his name. And in his name cannot just be glossed over. If we are asking 
in Jesus' name, then we are asking for the things that Jesus wants for us and also for others. And Jesus wants for God to be glorified. And just adding Jesus' name onto the end of the prayer doesn't mean you will get what you want, but praying in his name means asking for what Jesus wants. It's not just a little stamp on the end of your prayer and what we want, but it is asking for the things that Jesus would desire. We also say at the end of the prayer that we are taught by our Lord in Matthew chapter 6, and it appears in Luke as well. It's like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. These are the things that we even sang about this morning. There we are praying for God's will. We are praying for his glory, his kingdom to come. And that is his heart. To say Jesus' name, we are praying his heart to the Father. That is his will, and that is what we are praying for when we pray in his name. And again, it is not incumbent upon God to grant us our every desire or our every wish just because we include it in our prayers. He will respond to the child who prays in his will. And in all of these examples, we really can't take take it out of context and say, no, here's the proof that God will grant me whatever I wish for. That is not who God is. There are very important things. We must be delighting, committing our ways to Him, being obedient to Him, things according to His will, and asking in Jesus' name. They all really mean the same thing, praying the Father's heart and aligning with His will. And now we come to this verse that I was, I was hoping also to give away to someone else to teach. I'm kidding. <laughs> But this is one of those challenging texts that I want to caveat with, again, please be Bereans and also understand that there are many commentators who are trusted Bible scholars and they go a couple of different ways with this text. So here's the verse or the verses and let's just read them and then we'll, I'll expound upon them a little bit. But again, please uh, be Bereans about this text and ground it in his truth. So verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So I'm going to look at this a couple of ways with you, and one of the ways is interpreting that the, the death that John is writing about is a physical death. Is, is that what he's writing about? Is it a physical death? But then I'm also going to look at the other view as well, which is that of this being a spiritual death that he is describing. So let's consider what we are being told by John as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this because it's important for us to look at this and to try and understand it. Um, I could use a, a model by certain publishers which would jump over the difficult stuff and then I would just move into Second John. But uh, here we find ourselves studying what may be a difficult passage to uh, comprehend. And remember that context is very important, especially when we are only looking at things one verse at a time, that we must take things into account that come before and after. And so with this in mind, John describes two sins or... We could say categories of sins, because it could be uh, individual sins, some people interpret it that way, or category of sins, one type that does not lead to death, or categories that do not lead to death, and then one that does. And so now with physical death in mind here, turn to the books of, of Acts, chapter 5, 
And I want us to look here at a consequence of a sin that was committed by a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you are probably familiar with this. And we can see that a consequence of this sin was very literally a physical death. So let's read it starting in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, and I will go through verse 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So this is Ananias and Sapphira perishing as a result of lying to the Holy Spirit or lying to God as Peter uh, claims that they did, declares that they did. And as a result of that, a physical death came upon them. And Peter says it is because of their sin, of their lying to the Holy Spirit. So there we see uh, an example from the Scriptures where physical death occurs immediately upon this sin of lying to God. I think we have one other example that I've been able to find in Scripture, and that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30, if you turn there with me. Just a little bit of the context about this one. Paul is writing instruction to the church and how when they come together for these love feasts, uh, they are, many of them are coming together for the wrong purpose. And then he follows with this rebuke in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to start with verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So these verses might be more familiar because it is the passage that we often read before taking the Lord's Supper. But here we see in this strong rebuke from Paul to the church members who are abusing the Lord's Supper. And as a result, Paul says some have become sick and some have even died. 
And I believe he's talking about a physical death that has occurred. They've gotten sick and they've died because they took of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They didn't judge themselves rightly before God. And these are the only two examples I know of where a physical death is related to a specific sin outside of what we're reading here in 1 John. So coming back now to our reading of 1 John chapter 5, there's no specific mention of what sin this is or what categories of sin this is that leads to death. Okay, um, at least I haven't been able to discover this. But let's, uh, let's remember the context. The context here has been that of prayer. And the prayer that God answers is the prayer that is in accordance with His will. And back in verse 14, John is affirming for the believer that we have confidence in asking God for anything that is according to His will and that He hears us. He hears the things, He responds to the things that are in His will. Our heart is in alignment with God's when we are praying with his, for His will and when we ask something for something that He wants, then we are asking something that we should be asking from Him. If it's in his will. So in this discussion vein of being about prayer, we discover there are different types of sin and that impacts what we should and should not be asking for in regards to these particular types of sin. We are told what we should be praying for. It's those things according to God's will. And then we are told that there are some things that we should not ask for. And the example is provided by John. So look there with me again at verse 16. And it's really the last, last sentence there, but I'm going to read the entire thing again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, okay, he shall ask, is focusing in on prayer. This is, again, in the context of prayer. So he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So if we have observed a, a fellow believer sinning, maybe they're living their life more in a pattern of behavior that marks their life with sin, then my take on this is that we should be praying for God's mercy for the offender, that they are drawn to confession and repentance so that death does not result. But then there is also a sin that does lead to death. So we can pray for the sins that don't lead to death. We're not told what those are, but there is one that leads to death. And John does not suggest one should pray on behalf of the one committing that type of sin. John distinguishes between these two kinds of sin, but he also acknowledges that all sin is unrighteousness. So we shouldn't take this to mean that I can go out and commit all these sins that I want to because they're not going to lead to death and only this one leads to death. Then we better know what that sin is, but that's not what is to be understood here. It's praying for the right things, distinguishing between these two categories. So we are told what we should be praying for, and that's what is in accordance with God's, God's will. But when John says, do not pray for the person or that is committing the sin that leads to death, you know, we don't know what that is. We should be, you know, praying and seeking God's heart in our prayers, but we should also be praying for the believers and unbelievers alike that they come, or especially for the non-believers, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there are sins that will lead to death. 
And if it is a physical death or if it is a spiritual type of death here, um, we are, it's not very clear. All right? And also the type of sin or categories of sin. So John and the believers of his time, to whom he is writing, they probably understood what type of sin that this was and that what is being referred to. But since we don't have a clear explanation of what type of sin or group of sins that these are, then we're left to determine the possibilities. And the distinction John makes between the sin that does not lead to death and the sin that does lead to death illustrates that there are some requests not in accordance with God's will, and thus some requests the believer should not expect to be granted. And we know that God will respond to our prayers, and sometimes for the prayer of the believer it is yes, and then sometimes it's no. Uh, This principle is simple, I think, and straightforward if we keep the emphasis on prayer. If we're praying for the things outside of God's will, then we should not expect an answer, an affirming answer. Now, the second idea uh, that I mentioned earlier is that this death that is being alluded to here is an eternal death or a spiritual death. So we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, there was a very real physical death consequence of their sin. We see Paul alluding to a a type of physical death there if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But we are talking about eternal life. It seems that that emphasis has been on eternal life. So when we think of eternal life, we think of that that exists beyond our physical life here. And eternal life for the believer is one that is in heaven with God the Father. That is our hope and that is our security. But if this is a, a spiritual death being talked about, we can understand from Scripture that ultimately those who reject Christ if, and if they have hardened their hearts into finality, that there is the death of the soul that occurs here. It's eternity apart from God in the lake of fire. It's where Jesus describes as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an existence there for them, but it's described as an eternal type of death to, so that we understand the weightiness of that. There is a finality of a sin that is talked about in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. You can turn to it, but I'm just kind of going to paraphrase there, where there is here a sin that is called out by, by Jesus that is unforgivable. And it's called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And some of the commentators that I read say that this type of blasphemy describes someone who has attributed Jesus' miracles to that of the devil, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is occurring there. So there's one of the places where we see a sin that obviously leads to an eternal spiritual death. But another place is in Hebrews chapter 6, 6. And there it is where it speaks of one who has committed an, apo- an apostasy, to the degree where it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So there is this death, spiritual death, that awaits the one who has, who has just committed this apostasy, and they, they will not be renewed again to repentance. We see also in Romans chapter 1, where it is clearly described that because of man's refusal to acknowledge God as the creator and the worship of things, things that are created things other than God, that God gives them over to the desires of their heart. He gives them up to that. And I've heard that described as God's wrath of abandonment. 
And it's something that only God knows when he's turned someone over to that degree where there is no hope for them. We could call that an eternal or a spiritual death. So perhaps that is what John is referring to here. I was listening to some commentary uh, on my way out to the field doing some work this week and I think I heard uh, one commentator, I can't remember, describe a message like this as one that should bring comfort to the fearful and bring fear to the comfortable. Comfort to the fearful and fear to the comfortable. And we find many messages like that in God's word. But again, as I mentioned, John does not forbid anyone to pray for such people. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. But rather... He's describing the futility of praying for the one who is, in a sense, given over to their own devices, and they've chosen and they've worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This prayer will not be answered. Only God knows who those are, who he has given over, so we should pray that all would be saved and share the gospel to all who will hear. So the challenge uh, for interpreters is that nowhere in the context does John detail what sins he is talking about here or what kind of death. And you may disagree with me, but because there is ambiguity here, that it is probably best to just acknowledge that the principle that is being taught here is that of prayer, because that is clearly in the context, but what is not provided in the context is that uh, the specific nature of the sin that does not lead to death and the sin that does. All right, so I can see, I can see where both views reflect biblical truth, uh, so it's hard to be dogmatic as to which one John had in mind. Uh, but in either case, John's point is that prayer for those committing a sin leading to death will not result in the outcome that might otherwise be expected. We should pray, God, you know, your will be done, and that he is the one who is worthy of all the glory. But the fact of the matter is that in our fallen nature, and because we are all physically sons and daughters of Adam by nature, that we will eventually encounter a physical death of our own just by the nature of our, just by our fallen condition. Us having this life to live out here should be to the glory of God and committed to worship and obedience of Him and serving Him and serving others. He does not have to leave us here. You know, he could extinguish us our lives whenever he wants. But God in his great mercy does not immediately punish every sin with death, but every sin is a serious matter to him. And so John makes that very clear to us also. And this is our closing verse, verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So every sin is an affront to God. It should be taken seriously, and it should be repented of. It should be confessed before Him. And we should be trusting in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to have taken the punishment that we deserve, to take our sins to the cross, to die for them, to cleanse our sin for those who put their trust in Him and repent of their sin and turn to God who is able to save. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word to us. And as we looked at today, there's some things that challenge us. They certainly challenge our intellect, but even more so, they challenge our spirits. And God, we know that you are the great comforter and that you are the one who knows all things. 
And even though we might worry or agonize over things that we can't quite figure out, it's not left for us to figure out, but just to trust in you and to commit our ways to you, God. I pray that you would forgive me if there's any uh, wrong interpretation that I presented here, and if there's something that is or that was presented, that you would just strike that from our minds and help us to understand only the things that we're to take away from here, that we, we not just hear them, but that we grow in them, that we be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And I just ask that in our hearts that we would always consider when we're praying and making a request before you, God, that when we're praying we're at your will, that we know that we have what we asked of you. And thank you for this promise of scripture that it's not about the, the new material thing that we want, but it is praying your heart. And we know, God, that you desire for all to be saved. It, you call us to that great commission of going out and preaching the gospel and sharing with those who would hear. And we pray that hearts are changed and that you would just save lives through your word and that we would faithfully teach and preach your word to whoever you send us to. That we'd be o- obedient and we would show our love for you by just sharing of this great love that you have for us. And God, we just thank you for it, and we thank you for this time to be together as a church. We pray that as we think about these things throughout the week, that we are worshipful in doing that, and that we are not you know, lamenting and, and giving up and uh, being discouraged, but God, that we are always edified and encouraged by the study of your word. And Father, I pray that you will help us next Sunday as we come and present um, these individuals who have taken the step forward in wanting to take part in a baptism that we really consider the depth of that and what we are really demonstrating and that it's not a work that we are saved by but yet it is representing what you have done for us and God I just praise you for that opportunity as we look forward to it and I thank you for our time here today once again it's in Jesus name amen